The city of Sardis was one of the most ancient cities in Asia Minor. The citadel of that city was up on top of the hill, and that hill was surrounded on three sides by a 1,500-foot precipice. And then on the fourth side, there was a steep incline leading up to the gate of the citadel. And it seemed to be an almost impregnable fortress, but the fortress was taken by King Cyrus of Persia in 546 B.C. after a siege of only 14 days. One of Cyrus's soldiers scaled the cliffs unseen and then opened the gates, and the native Lydians lost their city to the Persians. This feat was repeated once again in the time of the Greeks by Antiochus III in the year 214 B.C. when he attacked Sardis to put down an insurrection. A Cretan in his army scaled the cliff with 15 other men, and again, the gates were opened to the attacking army. The city had a reputation for being a safe place, an impregnable fortress. Capturing Sardis was thought to be a thing impossible, yet it was done because of the carelessness of those who were supposed to be guarding the city. Likewise, we find as we look to Lamentations chapter 4 that no one in the earth thought that Jerusalem could fall. No one thought that it could be captured, but it was captured because of the carelessness, the foolishness, and the sinfulness of its people. So look with me, if you would, to our text for this morning in Lamentations chapter 4. We'll be... Uh, Looking at the whole chapter today, and so we'll read uh, from verse 1 down through verse 22. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, How dark the gold has become! How the pure gold has changed! The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. The precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen jars the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple embrace ash pits. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. Her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli. Their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. And he has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations." The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous, they wandered blind in the streets. 
They were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments. Depart, unclean, they cried of themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. So they fled and wandered. Men among the nations said, They shall not continue to dwell with us. The presence of the Lord has scattered them. He will not continue to regard them. They did not honor the priests. They did not favor the elders. Yet our eyes failed. Looking for help was useless. In our watching we have watched for a nation that could not save. They hunted our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were finished, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the sky. They chased us on the mountains. They waited in ambush for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we had said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, who dwells in the land of Uz. But the cup will come around to you as well. You will become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity has been completed, O daughter of Zion. He will exile you no longer, but he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Eden. He will expose your sins. Now, as we look to this chapter this morning, we'll consider it under four main points. The effect, the cause, the futility, and the hope. The effect, the cause, the futility, and the hope. This chapter before us this morning is one that presents the experience of Jerusalem as if everything had been flipped upside down on its head. In other words, everything that was good and wholesome in Jerusalem has either been lost or corrupted. Chapter 3, which we had considered over the last three weeks, had given us the high point of the book. And in that we saw how Jeremiah had gone from a place of despair to a place of hope and how in that hope he gave godly counsel to the rest of the remnant as they sought to pick up the pieces after the destruction of their city. But in chapter 4, the element of hope is not emphasized as it was in chapter 3. But here we see Jeremiah descending once again to the gritty reality of the situation as it was on the ground. He has to continue on in his life and to get on with things and trust the Lord despite the fact that the calamity has not yet been resolved. And as he looks out on the situation, everything has been flipped upside down. What had happened in Jerusalem was in some ways the last thing that you would expect. That is, it's the last thing you would expect if you'd been acting on the assumption that everything in Jerusalem and everyone in Jerusalem was behaving in a way that was wholesome and godly. Now, knowing, as we do, the history of Jerusalem leading up to the Babylonian conquest, we know that they were not behaving themselves in a godly way. Knowing, as we do from Scripture, the, the prophecies of the, the later prophets like, like Jeremiah and even the earlier prophets stretching all the way back to Moses, we find that the events described here are actually no surprise at all, given the, the ungodliness of the people. The Lord had warned them ahead of time, time and again, what the consequences for disobedience would be, and those consequences have been visited on the people of Jerusalem. Now, verses 1 through 10 present us with a series of upheavals and reverses. Verse 1 starts with 
the gold becoming darkened. Now, the reference to gold could be used in speaking of the people of Jerusalem, and verse 2 certainly does make that comparison between the sons of Zion and gold. It's possible also that the statement here regarding the gold could be given in reference to the temple itself. You recall that the temple was covered with gold. The temple was, or at least should have been, the focal point of Jerusalem. This is the place where the token of God's dwelling with his people was to be. 1 Kings 6, 21 and 22 tells us that in, the inside of the house was overlaid with pure gold. The whole house was overlaid with pure gold. It tells us that the altar by the inner sanctuary was overlaid with gold. And on the inside where the Ark of the Covenant was, the Ark of the Covenant was overlaid with gold as well. Jeremiah tells us now that the gold has become dark. The gold has changed, either meaning that the glorious temple has now become a charred ruin or the people of Jerusalem who have been compared to gold are now defeated and desolate. He also tells us that the sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street, whether they be stones from which the temple was constructed or simply the stones that had built up Jerusalem, the holy city. These stones are now lying in heaps as rubble. And then in verse 2, the point of comparison is explicit. The precious sons of Zion weighed against the fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen jars, or as the ESV translates it, the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. This is the comparison. The the sons of Zion are, are worth gold, but what has now happened to these precious and valuable sons of Zion? They're regarded as earthen vessels, mere pottery, which can be used and disposed of and far less than the value of gold. It's cheap, and if it cracks, you just get rid of it. No need to polish it up or try to save it. Verses 1 and 2 let us know that the valuation of things in Jerusalem has changed. The temple is weighed laced, and, and so were the people. Though Psalm 44 was certainly composed in regard to some other event in the national life of Israel, nevertheless, the language of Psalm 44, verses 11 and 12, may be applied to the situation here. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nation. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. Everything has been turned upside down, and the subsequent verses in the chapter make this abundantly clear. Due to the famine in the city, there is no food, even for the youngest and the most vulnerable among them. Women were not even able to treat their young with the kindness of a jackal. They were unable to nurse their infant children. And so the infants are parched with thirst. Those who were a little older were begging for bread. There's no bread for them. In verse 5, we find that the people who had had so much abundance that they were able not only to have their daily bread, but to even eat delicacies, are now reduced to desolation. They had grown up in purple, the expensive clothing of luxury, and now they're reduced to the position of embracing ash pits or dunghills, depending on how it's translated. They had once lived rich and luxurious lives, but now they're so poor that they go to these ash pits or dung hills either to live there or else to try to scrape and find something to eat. In verses 7 and 8, we have a 
picture of what had happened to the consecrated ones, referring either to uh, the Nazarites, as the, the King James Version translated it, or to those of the, the ruling classes, the nobles or the princes, as the ESV translates it. In verse 7, they're described as, as being purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their clothing is, is white or at least exceedingly bright, such as no longer the case. Their bodies were once described as, as ruddy, having a healthy complexion about them. But in the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem, these healthy and well-dressed people have changed significantly. Their appearance had been whiter than milk, but now it is blacker than soot. They have become dirty and disheveled as they tried to eke by in the new order of things now that Jerusalem has fallen. In such a condition, the people who formerly knew them can't even recognize them, and their skin is withered and shriveled. The situation of the famine in Jerusalem was such that Jeremiah could say in verse 9 that it's better to be slain with the sword than to be slain with hunger. The prospect of death by a sword is certainly frightening, but in practice it's quick and easy compared to, start to death by starvation, pining away and being stricken because of a lack of food. Starvation is certainly a slow and painful way to die, and by comparison, it makes death by the sword look like the more desirable of two options. And then according to verse 10, the situation was even more grisly than that. In the face of famine and starvation, some resorted to the almost unthinkable. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Now Moses had prophesied this very thing in Deuteronomy 28, 56, and 57 when he described how delicate and refined women would become hostile to the children whom they had borne. Moses said, For she will eat them secretly for lack of anything else during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. And this is indeed what Jeremiah is describing for us in verse 10 when he recounted how these compassionate women had cooked and eaten their own children. The judgment of God and the punishment of the nation as seen in these events was a punishment which to many people was unbelievable. And so we find in verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Now if you think back to the, the history of Jerusalem, Jerusalem had certainly been infringed upon by her enemies from time to time, such that tribute had to be paid either from the king's uh, palace or storehouse or from the temple treasury, perhaps. But the city had never been completely subjugated to an enemy invader since the days when King David had captured it from the Jebusites. There were those occasions when the Lord had stepped in miraculously to deliver Jerusalem from her enemies, as in Second Chronicles 20, when Jerusalem was attacked by a coalition of forces consisting of the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Meunites. And King Jehoshaphat had raised his voice in prayer and said, O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the Lord delivered Jerusalem from that coalition. They began fighting among themselves and attacking one another. Likewise, Jerusalem was later delivered in the days of Hezekiah when the Assyrians had invaded Judah and were planning to come up against Jerusalem. But the angel of the Lord struck 185,000 of the Assyrians. The Assyrians 
went back home. And so Jerusalem had this, this aura of invincibility about it. It was situated in the mountains and the hills, and it was well fortified. The Lord had favored Jerusalem with divine protection on more than one occasion. No one expected that the Babylonians would be able to enter the gates of Jerusalem. Even the Roman general Titus, who captured Jerusalem in A.D. 70, acknowledged that God had given him the victory, or otherwise he would not have succeeded. At least according to Josephus, Titus said, God is he that has drawn the Jews out of these fortresses, for human hands and machines could have done nothing against these towers. Kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the world who were familiar with the situation of Jerusalem did not expect that she would fall. But she did fall. And as we find in verse 11, the Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. We also see reference to the judgment of God up in verse 6. Though the New American Standard translates the first part of verse 6 by saying, For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sins of Sodom, the ESV seems to be on the right track here as to what is intended when it translates it by saying, for the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. And indeed, the explicit comparison in the second part of verse 6 is not the nature of the sins themselves, but rather the nature of the punishment that is given. Sodom was overthrown in a moment, in that moment when the Lord rained down fire and brimstone on her. Jerusalem's downflow was slower. And from that perspective, more painful. Just as death by starvation is worse than death by the sword, so also the, the protracted nature of the siege of Jerusalem and the agony of its inhabitants was, in that sense, a greater punishment than the, the quick overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was the effect. Right? We've, seen, we've seen the judgment here. This was the effect. Now, what was the cause? Well, if we look backward from the punishment received to the cause of the punishment, our text is clear that that cause was sin. Again, there in verse 6, the comparison with Sodom brings this out. Sodom was overthrown because of her sins. Jerusalem was also. And if we reason backwards from the punishment that was inflicted to the sin that was committed, it is reasonable to infer that since the punishment inflicted on Jerusalem was more painful and severe than that of Sodom, then that must mean that the sins of Jerusalem were greater than the sins of Sodom. And such was indeed the case. And we find this explicitly stated in Ezekiel 16:46 and following. In that passage in Ezekiel 16, the Lord describes the conduct of Jerusalem as being more abominable than both Sodom and Samaria. You've got this three-way comparison between Sodom, Samaria, which is the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And the Lord says that Jerusalem takes the cake as far as wickedness is concerned. Jerusalem was wicked, and one of the compounding factors regarding the wickedness of Jerusalem was that she sinned against greater light and greater knowledge. Jerusalem had the word of God. Jerusalem had the Levitical priesthood and the temple. She had the anointed Davidic king. She had the prophets of God. But her sins were heinous, and she despised the word of God and the institutions of God, the temple and the, uh, the worship according to 
the Mosaic law, she despised those things and instead plunged headlong into idolatry and all other kinds of sin. We also see the cause spoken of in verse 13, the cause of the judgment because of her sins, the the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. Now Judah and Jerusalem collectively were wicked, but the prophets and the priests were leading the way in this wickedness. They should have been leading the way in righteousness and in godly example and pointing others to the paths of righteousness, but they were not. The religious establishment in Jerusalem was not committed to the word of God and the propagation of the word of God for the faith and obedience of their nation. They were devoted to maintaining the status quo, proclaiming peace and prosperity to their people. And unsurprisingly, their failure in terms of their commitment to the word of God had powerful practical effects. And one of those practical effects is mentioned here that of shedding the blood of the righteous, resulting in their own uncleanness and therefore in their own wandering among the nations as seen in verses 14 and 15. And as we find in verse 16, this scattering is the Lord's doing. This is part of the Lord's judgment and punishment upon them. And in that scattering, they are dishonored as well. So we find that the Lord himself will not regard them, nor will they receive honor or respect from the people and the places in which they are forced to wander. At this point, we've, we've seen the effect. We've seen this massive upheaval and unexpected reversals that have come upon Jerusalem. And we have also seen the cause. The cause was the sin of the people, which brought on this judgment of God. That cause and effect, which we have seen here, reminds us of a very simple truth. Namely, that sin ruins everything. Sin ruins everything. Sin brings destruction. Sin destroys lives. Sin changes compassionate women into cannibals. Sin brings shame and dishonor even to the people who had once held high and honorable positions in church or state. In short, we're reminded that the wages of sin is death. And while our hearts go out for those who are suffering in such ways, we must also be forthright about the cause for which this suffering came. Again, as we've considered time and again in working our way through the book of Lamentations, we won't always know why some people suffer as they do, but nevertheless, there's no mystery about what was going on here. There's no mystery as to why this destruction and suffering came to Jerusalem. It was because of sin. Sin brings destruction in its wake. A man named Otto von Pack was the vice chancellor of the Roman Catholic Duke George of Saxony in the 1520s. He was a trusted and hardworking and appeared to be completely loyal to his duke. But Otto von Pack had a tragic secret flaw that would lead to his demise. He was a gambler, and apparently in need of money, he hatched a scheme to obtain some money from one of the Protestant princes of the day, the, uh, the German landgrave Philip of Hesch. And so von Pack told Philip of Hesch that there was a secret treaty between leaders of several Roman Catholic territories, and part of the agreement in this treaty was that these Roman Catholic leaders were going to launch an attack into Protestant lands, reinstitute Roman Catholicism, and then take for themselves the spoils of war. After receiving a large sum of money from Philip, von Pack showed him what he 
said was a copy of this alleged treaty. When he was pressed by, by Philip to show him the original, von Pack said that he had left the original with a friend who was a pharmacist back in Dresden. And he wrote a letter to his friend to give the original to his wife. And he wrote to his wife to pick up a package from the pharmacist. But there was no original for the pharmacist to give to his wife, and there was nothing of consequence for his wife to pick up and deliver. And meanwhile, Philip of Hessian, the Protestant Duke John Frederick of Electoral Saxony, were getting armies into the field, making ready for a preemptive strike against the strike, which they were convinced were coming against them. War was finally avoided when one of the Roman Catholic leaders who was allegedly involved in this treaty stated that there was no such treaty. Pack was then held prisoner by Philip of Hesch for a while, and when his duke, Duke George of Saxony, made it known that he wanted his vice-chancellor turned over to him, Philip wouldn't do it. Instead, he let Pack go, and Pack wandered up to the Netherlands for several years, but nine years later, Pack was apprehended, sent back to Dresden, confessed his forgery under torture, and was executed. Now, how did this whole mess get started? This got started because Otto von Pack was greedy. He wanted something for nothing, and so he fell into gambling. He was sinfully foolish, accruing debts that he could not pay. And then, as if to solve his problems, he committed forgery and told lies, rather serious lies that almost led to war. This wickedness led to life as a fugitive and ended in his torture and death. This is what sin does. It causes chaos, it destroys, and it ends in death. And this is not merely a matter of history. We see this in current events as well. How many times even do professing believers contradict their profession by their wickedness? How many times do professing believers give cause by their wickedness for the unbelieving world to blaspheme? to discredit the truth of God, or even to disbelieve God altogether. This happens all too frequently. Sometimes that wickedness is open and blatant, and the perpetrators of that wickedness uh, are seen by all. Sometimes the perpetrators of wickedness try to keep a lid on things in hopes that it will never be discovered with varying degrees of success. And so Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 5.24 that the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. In those cases when people do find out what has happened and the sins that have been committed, this brings shame to the one who has sinned and it gives the opportunity of the unbelieving world to scoff and deride God's people and to write us all off as frauds and hypocrites. And even if sin is largely kept out of view of man, God still sees and knows and will judge accordingly. And even then, there is destruction. Secret immoralities destroy marriages, families, and individual lives. Secret sins harden consciences and pave the way for bolder and greater sins. Sin ruins everything. It ends in death and destruction and judgment and hell. This chapter shows us what a temporal and earthly judgment looks like. As horrible as the realities that are described in this chapter were, rest assured that they are nothing in compared to God's eternal judgment in hell. And the terrible truth 
is that we're all sinners who deserve the judgment of God. Some of our sins are greater, some of them are less, some of them are more public, some are more private, but at the end of the day, we are all sinners, and even the least of our sins deserves the eternal wrath and judgment of God against it. Wrath and judgment which would make the devastation of Jerusalem and its effects on the people look quite tolerable compared to what we deserve. Our condition as sinners puts us in desperate need of help. People of Jerusalem also knew that they needed help and they looked for help, but it did not materialize as they had hoped. And this brings us to our third point, which is the futility. Notice how Jeremiah expresses the situation in which Jerusalem found herself there in verse 17. He says, Yet our eyes failed. Looking for help was useless. In our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save. This was what Jerusalem did. They pinned their hopes on a nation that could not save. In the days leading up to the sacking of Jerusalem, the eyes of Jerusalem were fixed on Egypt. They pinned their hopes on Egypt getting an army into the field and delivering them in some way by defeating the Babylonians or, or at least getting them away from Jerusalem and keeping them away. And for a while it seemed as if this hope would, would pan out as they had hoped. We find in Jeremiah 37.5 that Egypt did in fact send an army and the Babylonians did in fact lift the siege of Jerusalem for a time to deal with the Egyptian menace. At first glance it seemed as if their hopes may have proved to have been well placed. But the Lord said to King Zedekiah through Jeremiah, as we find in Jeremiah 37, 7 and following, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city, and they will capture it and burn it with fire. Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go or as Jeremiah described it here in verse 17, looking for help was useless. They were simply watching for a nation who couldn't help them. In verses 18 and 19, describe the tenacity with which the Babylonians pursued them and conquered them. The city was so dangerous that they could not walk in the streets. And even for those who had escaped the final collapse of the city by running away, there was no real way of escape. They could run. There was no hiding. The pursuers were swifter than eagles, they chased them on the mountains and they waited in ambush on the wilderness, in the wilderness. And notably, one of those who had escaped the falling city of Jerusalem, King Zedekiah, is spoken of particularly in verse 20. King Zedekiah is in verse 20 called the breath of their nostrils, the Lord's anointed. Zedekiah was a descendant of David sitting on David's throne, ruling in Jerusalem. And the people viewed him as the one who would protect their lives and give them safety in their place among the nations. This is what a king is supposed to do. He's supposed to protect his people, supposed to protect his nation so that they can live in peace and occupy their position in the world in safety. But it was all for naught. He could not be dependent Upon. He was weak and vacillating, and though he respected Jeremiah at least somewhat, he didn't respect him enough to actually obey the word of God that was given through him. And in the end, when the game was up and the Babylonians entered into Jerusalem, King Zedekiah and some of the mighty men of war made it outside the city walls. 
but they were captured by the Babylonians in the plains of Jericho. People of, Jeremiah, er, of Jerusalem had looked for safety and security in all the wrong places. Egypt couldn't save them, and neither could their earthly king. Even though this king was David's descendant, he was the rightful king, and in that sense, the Lord's anointed. People of Jerusalem learned by hard experience the truth of Psalm 146.3. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. In short, the people were sinners, and the judgment of God came upon them, and all of their attempts to find deliverance were merely exercises in futility. And though, as we find in the, the last couple of verses of the chapter, though they can look forward to the punishment of, of Edom, one of their gloating enemies, and they can look forward to the time in which their punishment will be completed and their exile will be in existence no longer. Even though they can look forward to that, nevertheless, the current reality is far from that. Edom is still alive and gloating, and the exile and the punishment is really just beginning for the Jews. So there is a lot of bad news in this chapter. But please allow this bad news and the way that it is framed in this chapter to point you to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is point four, the hope. The good news is that even though the anointed of the Lord failed Jerusalem in the events described here, and even though it was futile to trust in King Zedekiah, nevertheless, there is an anointed of the Lord in whom salvation may be found, and his name is Jesus. He is the Christ, or the Messiah, or in the words of verse 20, the anointed one. He's the long-promised, long-awaited son of David. He's the true king of his people, and his kingdom will have no end. When Peter was preaching to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, as we read those words together in our unison reading this morning, Peter described how God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How Jesus was put to death on a cross, but God had raised him up on the third day. And that now Jesus is the one whom God has appointed to judge the living and the dead, and that everyone who believes in him will receive the forgiveness of sins. Now, King Zedekiah here could not deliver his people because he could not defeat their enemies. Instead, he himself was captured by those enemies. That being the case, there was no way that he could give the people such a secure place that they could dwell in safety among the nations of the earth under his shadow. To live among the nations under his shadow meant that they could live in safety and security through his protection. And King Zedekiah was incapable of offering that kind of safety either to himself or to his people. And so it was futile for his people to rely on him. But it is completely different in regard to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, though to the outward eye, it seemed that when Christ was captured by his enemies, when he was arrested, that he was caught in their pits just like Zedekiah was. To the outward eye, it looked like the chief priests and the rulers of the Jews had caught Jesus in their trap and that they had won the day. To the outward eye, it appeared as if Satan had won the day and had finally succeeded in destroying the Son of God. But it was not so, because Jesus was not caught against his will. Jesus 
had submitted himself to that. This was his purpose. So he says in John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Though the Jews and Herod and Pontius Pilate were all working together against Jesus Christ, their collaborated effort and their collaborated effort culminated in his death on the cross. Jesus had not fallen into their pits, as Zedekiah had fallen into the pits of his enemies. Jesus went to his death willingly and freely. And so he says in John twelve twenty seven, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I came into the world. Or as he says in Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man did not come to be, uh, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our Lord laid down his life, and thus at the very moment when it appeared that his enemies were conquering him, he was actually conquering them. And not only his enemies, but ours as well. Through his death, Christ defeated Satan, who had the power of death. And Christ, therefore, released his people from the dominion of Satan. Through his crucifixion, he nailed our sins to the cross, and thus freeing from the condemnation that our sins had incurred for us. And three days after his crucifixion and death, Christ was raised from the dead, showing that this victory was his. And though the people of Jerusalem found to their chagrin that they could not live under the shadow of Zedekiah among the nations, they found to their chagrin that he could offer them no safety and security, The situation is very much the opposite for all who will take refuge in the true and final anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers to his people deliverance and safety. Not a deliverance and safety in the things of this world, but an eternal deliverance and an eternal safety. A deliverance and safety in which we're delivered from our greatest enemies. The world, our own sinful flesh, and our own sins and the devil. And this is a safety in which we are forgiven of all of our sins and saved from the wrath and judgment of God. This is a deliverance in which we are justified, counted righteous in the sight of God, and will be received freely into eternal life. And all of this comes to us as a gift of his grace through faith. And though, as we have seen in this chapter, our sins ruin everything, Nevertheless, Christ takes the mess that we have made of things and makes us lovely once again. He brings healing to the brokenness that we have created. Though our sins are as red as scarlet, he makes them as white as snow. And the image of God in us, which has been marred and defaced by our sins, is now through Christ remade. It's reformed in us anew as we are conformed to the image of Christ by the working and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Christ takes the broken and the helpless and those who have been wounded by their sins and make them new. Those who wait upon the Lord renew their strength. And according to the words of our Savior, those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual poverty and recognize that they have nothing spiritually advantageous to bring to the table, though poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn are comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they know they don't have any are filled. They're filled with his righteousness. All who come to him are washed and justified and sanctified. 
Formerly, we were fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and swindlers, but not anymore. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And we find in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved his church, loved his church, sinners from every nation under heaven, so that he gave himself up for his church, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water through the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is what Christ does. He takes the mess that we have made, washes it away, and makes us new. So friends, look to Christ. We're sinners and our sins ruin everything and will ultimately lead to judgment unless someone intercedes for us, unless someone mediates for us with God. Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is that mediator for all who will come to him in repentance and faith. So turn from your sins and believe upon Christ and receive grace, pardon, and mercy through him. And then live in confidence under his shadow and his protection. For nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the great grace of your gospel, the mercies of Christ, which are ours through faith. Lord, we ask that we would cling to Christ, and in Christ we would live safely in this world. Not that the things of the world will never harm us, but rather that they can never separate us from you. We know that we're safe in Christ. Pray that we would look to him and run to him for refuge. We give you praise and we give you thanks for the grace of your glorious gospel. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.